Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to Agronomy Edition number three. Happy New Year to all of our great listeners. So far, we've gotten awesome feedback on this year's uh, 2023 recap and key takeaways for 2024. On this week's episode, two really great interviews, Dr. Nick Sider from the University of Illinois and Dr. Ignacio CMPD from K-State University. Uh, Really looking forward to sharing this one with you guys. Uh, Keep giving us your feedback. Uh, like and share the podcast, and appreciate uh, everybody that's tuning in. Happy New Year! Our, our show, Nick, is is kind of the idea would be helping growers just think about you know high yield management, what's working on your farm, and and what do you need your watch outs. And I know Andrew sent you some questions, but what we're really hoping you do for us today is is maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, uh, where you're at, where you came from, and and what you're working on, and then and then dive into your observations from the year. Oh yeah, yeah, happy to. So I'm a I'm a field crop entomologist at U of I. I've been here since 2017, fall 2017, so six years. Uh, so I work on insect. And to, and to clarify, Nick, U of U of I in the state of Iowa is that bad. School. Yeah, I was gonna say we <laughs> yeah, might yeah, we yeah. might need to we might need yeah. to pause there. We don't you know the <laughs> University of Illinois. There University we go. American um, needs farmers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm at Illinois. I'm not in Iowa. Not in, not in Indianapolis. Um, but uh, so I, I'm an entomologist here. I work on insect management in corn and soybean. For us, that means I spend most of my time working on corn rootworm. Yep, I was just going to um, say. I'd say, yeah, yeah, probably, probably eighty percent of what I do has something to do with that insect. Uh, maybe seventy eh, percent. I, I work in soybean as well. Um, as y'all know, I, I'm, I'm sure the insect pests in soybean are a lot more variable. Yeah. You know, we see more of them, uh, but we never know in any one year necessarily what we're going to get at least for for us in illinois soybean aphid has kind of gone away so without that insect in the system we, it really does vary from year yeah kind of like soybean yields it just fluctuates right yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and it yeah you know this year we saw a lot of green clover worm uh two years ago i think was the first year ever i i don't know if i saw 10 green clover worms all year oh, yeah. you, you know oh. it just really really depends on the year, um, what we're going to see in that crop. Um, but yeah, most of my time, uh, looking at corn rootworm, uh, looking at BT resistance in particular, looking yeah. at alternative management strategies for that inset takes, up. that's a lot. I mean, that, that's a, that's a hot topic, both Iowa and Illinois. And I, I know we had some big issues and, and some new situations, which we can, we can discuss, you know, as we continue this conversation, um, you know, looking, looking to, to build on that. What, what are some things that you noticed, whether it's corn or soybeans, since you deal with both, that, you know, that the environment or anything that 2023 gave you impacted row crop production in your state? Sure, sure. And I'll, I'll say in Champaign, it was dry. 
um, it was real dry through the first half of the, the year um, to where we really, for, for a while there, we were concerned we might not get anything. I think the yields in general turned out pretty good. They, they weren't good on my little trial, but that's okay. We had worms <laughs> feeding on it and that kind of thing. But overall, we did pretty well yield-wise, all things considered. Um, but certainly the first half of the season, the drought was the, the big news. For, for me, looking at insect pests, that usually means not a big insect year. You know, there, there are certain things that are favored by droughts, uh, spider mites, for instance, in, yep, yep. in both crops, but for us in soybean in particular. Grasshoppers, which here in Illinois, we don't get, you know, it seems the further west you go, the, the more likely you are to have issues with grasshoppers. We get a few here and there, but nothing, nothing major. And then with rootworm, it's not so much that they don't necessarily do better when it's dry, um, but, but two things happen uh, when it's dry. One is that they don't get flooded. So rootworms really do not like to have saturated soil in May and June when those eggs are hatched. Yeah. And so when we, when we don't have that, we don't have that negative impact on their population. So it's not that the dry is helping them. It's that when it's dry, it's not flooding and the flooding really does a number on them. The, the other thing that we see um, is, of course, when you start to lose your root mass and it's dry, that kind of exacerbates the effect of that drought, yep. right? And, and so you've got drought stress, it, all, all of a sudden a little bit of a rootworm injury is much more of a problem than it would have been yep. uh, otherwise. So, you know, you'll see sometimes if there's good soil moisture, you can have a lot of rootworm injury without really suffering a lot of yield loss. Uh, when it's very dry, um, it, it really kind of magnifies the impact of that, even, even if it's a little bit of injury. Yeah. So so I'm curious, Nick, you know, we, we had a, a pretty bad year in terms of populations, but also feeding and yield impact in the state of Iowa. Mm -hmm. But also, I would say, and, and maybe not new, but new to the levels that we saw this year, the whole extended diapause conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then probably as you move towards the eastern part of the state, you know, potentially the western corn rootworm variant. What, what's, what's the impact of, of either of those populations within Illinois? Yeah, and, and that's been an interesting situation. So one thing in Illinois, we have a tendency to see what y'all see in Iowa maybe like a year later. Like, like you're really kind of the, the, the hot spot for a corn rootworm, and, and it sort of drifts out from there into northern Illinois in particular. We like, we, we like, we like to be leaders. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> We're yeah. trendsetters right. in the yeah. farming industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like going first. <laughs> there you go. So, so for us, what's interesting, like over here in East Central Illinois, where, where my office is at least, I mean, I work throughout the state, um, we don't hardly see corn rootworm. You, you know, we see them on my my trial fields because I, I bring them in, but we're barely seeing that insect as a problem here. It's because that rotation resistant variant, that Western corn rootworm, ha has almost gone away. You, you know, there's very low populations in soybean in this part of the state. You go north of I-80, um, where we have a lot more corn following corn, we have a lot of rootworm. And, and in recent years, that's been a lot of northern corn rootworm 
in addition to Western. And, and of course, it's Northern that goes through the extended diapause. And we, we've had some reports of that as well. We haven't had the number of reports that y'all did in, in Iowa this last year, but, but we've started to see some of that. Um, some damage to first year corn. For us, though, it, it's primarily in those areas where, like regionally, we have a lot of corn after corn. We have high rootworm populations. If you go back to the, the late 90s, early 2000s, kind of the, the heyday for like the rotation resistant variant, yep. um, that was really happening most intensely, like in East Central Illinois, where all, almost everything is one to one corn soybean. Yeah rotation. So in those areas, we're not seeing much, uh, not damage in first year corn, not really a lot of damage, even in the little bit of corn after corn that we have. But you get up north of I-80, DeKalb County in particular is kind of the, the hot spot for us, but over into like Lee, Ogle, Stevenson counties up there in northwestern Illinois. Yeah. Uh, we've seen a lot of problems and, and that's starting to sneak into first year corn, probably in large part, I would guess, due to extended diapause from northern corn rootworm yeah um but in some cases sort of bleeding over from these long-term corn after corn yeah well well, if if resistance isn't hard enough to deal with i mean you can at least manage that through rotation right but but we start Mm -hmm. talking extended diapause and and some of the just we'll we'll call them the unknowns because how hard is that to scout for right and and you know (laughs) oh yeah that that throws that throws a massive wrench in the, in the whole discussion on whether, whether it's trait technology or that rotation, right? That just throws a big wrench in the whole discussion with growers. Yeah. It makes it really difficult to deal with because you don't really know how long you need to, to follow that field. Um, yeah. In general, most of the extended diapause we see it's year two, you know, but what you get is a population where those eggs almost become like weed seeds, right? Where, where some of them are germinating after one year. Um, a lot of them are germinating after two years, but then you have a few that germinate after three or four years. Wow. So you're, you're making a yeah. decision with that. How long do I need to follow this field, right? How yeah. long do I need to protect corn in this field once I establish that history of extended diapause northern corn? Yeah. Is, is that something your lab and, and you're really looking at to try and, I mean, that that's one of the questions I often have. How often do we need to look at that? What What's that? I feel like we know so little about that population. Is it a one to two year hatch? You get a good percentage of them that, that will hatch. Is it three to four years? And then, you know, it just keeps dwindling the population after that. What's your thoughts on that? We're starting to look into that. We don't have a lot of new information yet. You know, one of the, the real challenges of that trait is you've got a, a one, two, three, four year diapause. What it takes it takes four years to study that. You, you, <laughs> yeah, you know, you yeah, have to yeah. you have to rear that insect in the lab and, and run those eggs through those diapause cycles, and it's something we really can't get a quick answer on. But we're we're starting to try to at least infer um, what we've got in that population and compare it to what we had in the past. Um, but yeah, it, it's a challenge to look at and. Um, that that's the reason, by the way, no one's looked at it. In, I mean, <laughs> it's the, not easy, right? You can't just walk to a cornfield. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the the fellow that originally looked at it um, in, in Illinois, or one of the fellows that originally looked at it, a guy named Eli Levine, he, he collected all these northern corn rootworm eggs, and he put them in petri dishes, like on individual individual spots on a petri dish, and he drew a little cross on the filter paper that he had them on. And he'd go and check those eggs like every day 
see if they've moved around to see if they've started to germinate that kind of thing. It, hmm. it takes that kind of really meticulous work to, to, to really look at what's going on with these insects. Cause they're very difficult to tell, you, you know, you, you look at an egg, it's an egg and you, yeah. you you've got to be pretty careful about, um, whether this is going to hatch in the future, you, you know, if it hasn't hatched already. Um, yeah. So, so a lot of challenges, but one of the, the things that's foremost on our mind right now, because of what it does to the decision-making process for that insect. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, uh, an, an insect and a pest that has major implications across the corn belt. So I think that research is, is highly valuable and looking forward to keeping in touch with you about that. Um, I, I'm curious about some of maybe, maybe some new potential insects. I mean, l- looking at Iowa specifically, I mean, in, in the last two years, we've had what we'll call them somewhat new insects, not new species or anything, but I mean, we have uh, the Dectus stem borer in, in soybeans, and then we also have soybean gall midge. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I was it's, it's strange how in the last two years we've had insects we typically have never dealt with. Um, you know, we're starting to see issues and cause problems in fields. Is there anything like that popping up in Illinois? Well, Dectus stem borer, certainly, we're, we, we've been following that for a number of years. It, it's been expanding in our state. At least it's been on people's radar in a way that it wasn't in the past. Uh, we've been doing a lot of survey work on that insect. Um, for us, it's the really the southern third of Illinois, but especially the areas where we have a lot of conservation tillage, a lot of no-till. Okay. You know, they overwinter in the base of those stems. And so, it, you know, here in Champaign County, we till everything all Right, like we got we got a lot of recreational We tell everything all the time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, so we we don't see that insect up here, but you go down into southern Illinois, we've got these things called hills. You you know, we've got a little bit of topography down there, um, and we have a lot of conservation tillage as a result of that. And and, you know, it's not so much a field to field thing, but regionally, when you look at that, when you look at the regional effect of that it allows those populations to build up and makes it more of a problem. Uh, we've been lucky enough not to see the gall midge yet. We're kind of hoping if it does get here that y'all have it all figured, <laughs> figured out, out by now. now. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. By the time we see it, we'd like that to be solved. That's all right. But, um, well, yeah, I know they're a, working on it at Iowa state, but it's a, it sounds like a strange one and a hard one to, to pin down any good management practices as of now. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it doesn't seem like insecticides work terribly well unless you want to use like, uh, it's one of the older ones, right. That that they've been using to get some control of that. Um, some pretty hot stuff that it yeah. takes to kill that insect. Kill um, everything in a 10 mile range. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not something, you know, it, it's not an easy insect to control. For yeah. sure. And I, I don't think I've ever, I can't think of another example of something that where, where it's a pest, but it's actually new to science, you, you know, yeah. a, a pest of, of soybean, uh, you know, of a commodity like that. Um, like soybean aphid, when it came here, we knew that existed. Like yeah, we knew right. what it was because it fed on soybean in Asia. This, we don't really know where it's from because no one had ever seen it. Before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So really, it's hard, really hard to imagine that. At this at this point, that still exists, right? Like something no, can pop yeah. up that we're not we're not aware of. But um, I guess maybe 
maybe zoom out to 30,000 feet um, as we, as we kind of maybe, maybe wrap up just any, any real key takeaways from your growing season? I mean, I mean, stuff that either uh, maybe affirmed something you previously uh, really believed in or, or something that kind of caught you off guard this year. We didn't have a lot that caught us off guard. Um, I'll tell you the, the situation with, corn rootworm uh, continues to concern us as we just, we're not losing things all of a sudden. You, you know, it's not like these technologies are just falling off immediately. It's that we lose just a little bit every year, yeah. you know, in terms of the susceptibility of those insects to those traits. And in 2023, we lost just a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, certainly the, the, the emergence of, of more injury to first-year corn last year uh, in, in Iowa especially is something we're concerned about. That's something we've been we've been kind of wondering when we would see that here, you, you know, like what level does that population need to hit in terms of density before we start to see that. And, yeah, that certainly gives us a con- concern that over the next few years this thing could start to spread a- as an issue. In terms of insect pests, I mean, that's our biggest concern in row crops right now. Everything else we've got, like, yeah, it's it's a problem, but we can manage it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, it's, one it's, thing that caught me off guard a little bit, I thought we would have had more issues with spider mite last year. Yeah, yeah, in the drought. You know, as dry as it got, I, I really thought we were going to get into some trouble with that, and we really didn't. I mean, we had them here and there, like like we usually do if it's a little dry, but it wasn't like I might've expected it to be. Nick, let me, let me ask you a question. So thinking about corn rootworm and starting to see the first year damage and you know what, what we run into, I guess, when we start thinking about seed planting and obviously we got to be careful that we don't turn this into like a, you know, a, a, that might be a, a better conversation to have a full episode about, but I guess just like a, a short answer. Do you, so when you say we're starting to lose, obviously we're talking about the efficacy of of existing technology, right? To um, to offset these insects. How far away do you think we are from considering running traded technology on first year corn? I mean, is that is that on the near horizon, or or, or where where do you see that going? I don't know. I mean, for us here. It's not something we've seen enough of to really push it unless you're in an area where, you know, if you're into Cal County, um, yeah, I'd be watching those. I'd certainly be watching those soybean fields, but I, I'd be looking out for northern corn rootworm. Yeah, yeah. And getting a feel for how much northern corn rootworm you have um, in these corn fields. And then following those fields accordingly and, and understanding that, like, if you've got a high population of northern corn root you can't assume that a year of soybean is going to protect first-year corn. Um, two years of soybean might. I, I don't think there's a single acre of soybean after soybean. Yeah, good luck um, talking the farmer into that one right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's not a lot of that going on. Yeah, I, I, I'd like, I'd like Nick. You know, maybe it'd be a, a consideration at, at some point to if you'd be willing to come back on and I mean, it's probably worthy of a, yeah, of a lot, of a lot more in-depth episode, you know, um, any, anything else? I mean, um, anything else for our listener kind of as, as, as we talk about just 2023 year end wrap, anything else you want our listeners to know, um, your, your takeaways. Trying to think 
You know, there wasn't anything too wild for us this year as far as unexpected. Like a few years ago, we had seen corn maggot and a lot of that early planted soybean. You know, that was a surprise. Uh, We didn't get a lot of that kind of stuff this year. One of the things that helped us, I think, is we had a fairly a fairly easy planting season in terms of not getting stuff frozen in the ground for three weeks. After planting, <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and part of that was because we couldn't get in super early this year. Um, and so that helped that that's when we see the weirdest stuff is right after planting. Like that's when we see like, you know, seed corn maggot and millipedes and wireworms and all these kinds of things. Yeah. We get good early season growing conditions. We avoid a lot of that. Yeah. Yep. I, I guess I know. I feel like we should have an whole a whole episode discussing corn rootworm and some of the research you're doing. But you, but you got me thinking. So we have the, we have the subset of population with extended diapause or Western corn rootworm variant. Do we have any idea? You know, we often talk about the the reduced susceptibility of of some of these, uh, you know, northern and westerns to traits, and, and especially the northerns, right? Do we have any idea mm-hmm. those subset of extended diapause in indoor variants? Do, do those also show? some reduced susceptibility to the trait technology that's on the market or do we, are we still looking into that? Oh, um, so my, my kind of assumption is that if we see a population out there and it's causing problems and it's not like an isolated population way down in Southern Illinois on 10 year corn, you know, which we see those from time to time and they're a little bit different. Like if we see it get to the the numbers that it needs to get to cause a problem, it, it's got some reduced susceptibility to BT. Yeah. Um, so not only and, do we have so, reduced susceptibility populations, but we also have populations that have reduced susceptibility plus the extended diapause. All in, yeah. yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. If we're if we're very likely <laughs> oh the reason we're starting to see these again <laughs> yeah. is because they've started to overcome those BT traits. Yeah. Um, that's certainly like. That's when we started to see northerns again, really. And, you know, for a while we didn't hardly see that insect. And they documented resistance to to both of the traits in, so Cry3BB1 and 3435. Up in the Dakotas, they documented that. And we started seeing that work its way into the system. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We, we We don't see it if it's not got a little bit of resistance to those traits. It, yeah, unless by, again, by the time Iowa gives it to Illinois, right? It's already worked. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. They, they've right. molded it for a few yeah. years. And yeah. Well, Nick, I greatly appreciate the work you you are doing um, that 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 your lab and your teams doing, and and it sounds like you may have gotten yourself uh, either intentionally or unintentionally uh, in, invited to a uh, to a full show. But I appreciate you coming on uh, today and, and helping our listeners think about this stuff. And um, yeah, as always, appreciate the work that that you guys are doing. Yeah, thank no you very problem. much, Nick. Thank yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, great. Well, I I guess I will go ahead and I will kick us off. Um, Andrew, back with our next guest and uh, someone who's been a prior guest on A Penny for Your Thoughts, um, Dr. Ignacio Ciampiti. Uh, uh, Ignacio, uh, great to have you back. How are you today? Thank you so much for the invitation. We're, uh, we're excited to have you. Um, just uh, briefly, uh, for those who may not have heard your previous episode with us, um, tell our listeners uh, where you're from and what you currently do. Uh, I'm now based in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, Kansas State University. I'm a professor 
in the Department of Agronomy and also director for the Digital Agriculture and, and Advanced Analytics Institute uh, here at Kansas State University. Excellent. Excellent. Appreciate you taking time to join us. Um, Andrew, start our conversation with uh, Ignacio. Yeah, you bet. Uh, looking forward to get your take on, you know, this this year end summary uh, wrap up to 2023. Uh, so, so, Ignacio, you know, th this episode is really about taking what we learned and what we saw in 2023 and, and hopefully helping growers get better at what we do and, and agronomists get better at recommendations, you know, from, from the lessons we learned from 2023, uh, you know, moving into 2024. So if you could, uh, could you start us off, you know, just discussing some of the environmental conditions that, that you saw there in Kansas, whether it's wheat, corn, or soybeans, you know, in the impact they had on those crops? Yeah, I would say this 2023 has been very, I would say, particular in the size of we start the season for corn and soybeans kind of a little bit on the dry end. Um, so for that, in many situations, that early planted crop was not looking that good in some places. And then for those ones that they were planting a little bit late, uh, May, June, that crop was getting into a much better condition situation. So the early, early start in the season was a little bit uh, we got much better moisture when we were getting into a little bit April, May, um, a little bit after kind of a early, early planting time for many of the, the, the major crops. Um, and then after that, if you think about during the season, this was a very peculiar year because we have a lot of heat, um, not only just drought, which in many situations, depending on the season, the condition of the region, where we have uh, the crop um, present, it, it could differ if you move from central Kansas, there are sometimes higher probabilities, I mean, uh, based on the erratic or low precipitation. If you go to Western Kansas, sometimes, I mean, we get precipitation. This year, one of the, I would say, one of the environments that suffered the most was the central part of the state and also the Eastern part of the state mainly just because we have some dry spell uh, immediately after, like I would say, uh, flowering. So we went through flowering, okay, for some of the early planted corn in July, and then we start going into the situation that after that flowering time, very minimum rain in many environments from that time until probably mid-August, end of August. And then the other combination that kind of put us on, on a really bad spot for not only for corn, but also for soybeans was all the heat, um, the extreme um, temperature that we have last week of July. I remember at least one week there and we have another episode that was very close to mid to late August, which basically if, if you want to think about is impacting uh, your early corn has been in many situations for the first episode uh, getting through pollination but we start seeing a lot of abortion many kernels that they got set but they got into those kernels that they got set even late they got into abortion um, so we start seeing some uh, years that they were losing kernels that was one of the things that we, we detected and then if you think about on the soybean side, one of the biggest impact was on the late heat 
and mainly was impacting the crop during the moment that they fill in the seeds, which we know that in many situations when we are thinking about yield formation, uh, 40% of the yield is being formed during the seed filling, that usually in many environments for early planted soybeans could be from mid-August all the way to mid-September or more. And then that last uh, heat uh, really impacted the crop. Uh, and we have seen situations where we have very poor quality. Uh, when I'm saying very poor quality means like a low, uh, low seed weight, um, poor quality per se, or, or a physical quality on the grains in many situations. Um, and then the lay planted, what we have in these environments, we also have sometimes double crop soybeans after uh, winter cereal, for example, like winter wheat or after some canola in some fields. Most of that double cropping soybean um, in many environments like central Kansas was almost for very low yields, uh, very, very poor to almost not even harvested. Um, we have a few scenarios like those also for the early planted corn. Some of that corn that got into flowering uh, mid-July and then was really just on the wrong spot. So very challenging growing season, 2023. Uh, very, very challenging. The western part of the state uh, did a little bit better. I mean, they have a little bit better rains and they have a little bit this kind of altitude effect. So some of that heat uh, that we uh, suffered on this section was not that um, excess, I mean, compared to this area, but still very challenging year on 2023 on, on many of the major crop production. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like the, the term, un, uh, you know, uh, harsh environmental conditions is an, is an understatement. You know, we, we had we had a really hot week of weather back in August. And I, I saw a lot of stuff similar to what you were describing, you know, the impact on, on grain fill and kernel weight um, and, and then stock quality. And, and I think, you know, obviously Kansas probably has a little bit more droughty conditions than what Iowa typically faces. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm curious from, from your, your viewpoint there in Kansas, Ignacio, I know in Iowa, you know, as we continue to have these dry years, it, it kind of exposes some of the, the flaws and, and maybe, it, you know, uh, management practices that, that maybe aren't the, the best or you know just just certain things that that are exposed due to those dry conditions what do you see there in kansas whether it's corn soybean or wheat you know the, the impact that drought has in, in exposing some of those um weaknesses within a farming you know management practices i would say what what really exposes uh, the drought in many situations is uh, i will start with corn i will say corn first because when we are thinking about the planting date, which is one of the first management, if we are planting too early, as we are pushing some environments, we are also going to that risk that we are putting all the corn, most of our crop, into just one or two weeks uh, of that flowering, right? Because if we plant it super early, if we go early April, that corn is still going to flower around the first week of July. And we know, and we have this discussion many times with farmers, and we say, have you looked at the weather conditions? Have you looked at your county? What, was the, what is the 30-year average precipitation for the first week of July? Uh, have you taken a look to see how much rain do you usually get on that week here? Just to start learn, kind of a getting 
pointed to the term and to the idea that we need to start looking at historical data um, to give us a better idea on what is the potential for that environment uh, and what is the, are the probabilities. So in many situations, we need to get a good inch of rain no? around flowering. And yep. for me, it's like, what are the probabilities that you can get, if I look at the last 30 years, data on, on weather and rain and precipitation around that week, what is the probability that you get one inch? Um, and is that probability changing as you are changing, moving maybe to late July? Um, and I'm always kind of a challenging because we never know what next year is going to bring. But what we know is that each year is going to bring more and more complex challenges. And then this idea of placing and putting all your planting date in, in a very narrow window kind of creates a susceptibility that unless you are under irrigation, uh, if you are just in a rain-fed environment, as many of the farmers out there, you're just playing with the possibility that if we get no rain, I mean, around that time, uh, just only 10 days, 15 days of lack of rain, we lose there 50% in corn specifically of that yield potential. And we even know that the probability of that happen is always very, very high. More when we are looking at corn flowering in many environments, I mean, first week of July, right? And, and I brought corn first because when you look at soybeans, uh, the parallel, the parallel idea, analogy on soybeans, you need to think that soybeans go into this kind of um, high demand, high susceptibility to stress. But usually that happens to soybeans when soybeans are getting to pot formation, pot uh, seed filling. Usually happens to soybeans around mid-August. So any stress condition that we have sometimes, as we are seeing for corn, impacting large uh, in terms of I mean, reduction in yield. For soybeans, that stress condition in early July doesn't do much. So the same effect or similar size in terms of yield reduction, for soybeans, you need to look at basically more focusing on mid-August, late-August. And that's one of the things that why we are seeing this year um, some really poor soybean yields, just because some of the stress in many env environments got delayed, and then that delayed on that timing for heat and drought conditions, it really impacted also that soybean crop when it was a moment that is just under much pressure. So that timing on, on, on stress is, is one of the critical factors that we need to think when we are taking those decisions on selecting the best planting date or selecting basically what are the different planting dates that you're planning to use in different fields. I, I appreciate the feedback. One of the things that I always think is funny, Ignacio, we talk about you know, the, the, the narrow window that we plant that stuff in. And it's, it's always interesting to be in the seed industry and watch farmers, you know, try and decide when to go. And I always laugh because it's always this attitude, no, we're just going to go plant one field to set the planter, you know, and then 
<laughs> you know, and then five days later, everything's done and it, it feels like a NASCAR race. But um, Ignacio, yeah. when we had you on our podcast previously, we talked um, pretty extensively about nitrogen. Would you maybe talk a little bit, not necessarily about nitrogen specifically, but maybe any um, any observations is about practices that maybe helped mitigate um, some of the heat and the drought uh, practices you would either encourage us to consider or potentially stay away from? Well, one one aspect also that the heat and the drought exposes is is, is our system, our recommendation, and, and also the the, the the way that we apply it. You no, know? because we apply uh, as we discussed in the previous podcast, we apply most of our nitrogen in many cases all at planting. And and basically, when you do that, you're you're kind of a gambling, mainly because you're just applying nitrogen for a target yield goal hoping that you will get basically that yield goal that in many situations that happens only under ideal conditions, perfect conditions. But we know that in many cases we don't have any like ideal perfect conditions. And I think that that's one of the, the key aspects when we are thinking about how stress is impacting the crop and how is it even this nitrogen. Uh, and in many situations when we think about Heat and drought usually reduce yields. That is an effect that we see all the time. So what we need to start thinking about what are the effects that nitrogen will do to the crop. Applying nitrogen, and if you apply all your nitrogen early at planting, most likely you will be leaving a lot of nitrogen. I mean, and then that nitrogen will exacerbate the plant to grow and exacerbate the plant to use that nitrogen. So you will be producing a very big size of plant, uh, large size of plant. And if everything goes well during, during the first months, you will do very well. Uh, you will have a very nice looking plant. The only challenge is if you have any stress condition around flowering time, all that excess of or, or the, all the size of the plant that you produce early in the season, it's going to be playing as a negative aspect. It's going to play negative because now you need to maintain a larger size of plant. You need to start using and burning in some way the water, whatever is available at the, during that soil profile. And you're using chess or you have been using that water, whatever was available to build the plant. But the challenge is now that you need to convert all this uh, water into basically seeds or grains and that's one of the challenges is like in many situations i mean you will be running out of water and more if you are in a scenario that you don't have any rains during the flowering no um so i, I always go back to this point of the, the strategy of applying all nitrogen and just being done as that is a, one of the main, main feelings <laughs> uh, sometimes doesn't play really well with this drought and heat conditions because <laughs> many, many situations we are increasing uh, our probabilities of being penalized for doing that because we're not helping the plant and the second aspect is we are shooting really high for potential yield in a perfect world and a scenario but we know that these uh, episodes of drought and heat they might become more frequent and and I think yep. that technolo technologies of splitting nitrogen or technologies of using different approaches on, on nitrogen 
or inhibitors, um, they're going to become slowly, but I feel that they're going to become I mean, just the, the role to start making sure that we manage these much better. Yeah, I, I really like those recommendations, Ignacio, you know, thinking differently about how, how we apply our fertilizer and specifically nitrogen under these dry conditions. And, and I really like your recommendation about, you know, growers as, as we enter into these potential drought scenarios, you know, obviously we can't do anything to manage the weather, but what we can do is look at the historical rain history and, and drought history of, of a field that a grower owns, right? And you kind of reminded me of something I did with a grower years ago. You know, I remember he had a river bottom ground that was basically land, and every year, you know, he had a high likelihood of drying up. And so I remember just thinking about planting a really early product so that we get to silking and, and through grain fill, or not grain fill, but, you know, through silking and through seed set to increase the likelihood that we would, you know, we, we would get all that done before drought typically occur, occurs on that field. And, and I, I think that's really good recommendation moving forward that, you know, if, if we're a grower in, one of the, in that area where we've, we've experienced drought the last three years, maybe we start thinking about those those weeks and months where we're typically drying that farm and, and try and look back. I mean, we know all of the GDUs to black layer. We know GDUs yeah. to silk, right? And so we can use that to our advantage. So I, I really like yeah. that call out. Yeah, and I always clarify this point because, I mean, and it's exactly what you just said. In corn, in corn, we have a very good idea. Whenever you are planting that crop, you already know when are we more or less being flowered and when are we being more or less on, on maturity. And I think that we need to start thinking and using that information to uh, help on making recommendations um, and also emphasize this point of diversifying because, I mean, in many situations, no one wants to tell you, but I mean, it's, it's awesome that we can just go ahead and then finish and, and plant everything in a week um, and be done. But it's also putting a lot of pressure into the system because you put all your cars on one number. It's just that one number, that one week, that if we have a, that uh, lack of a rain concentrated in two or three weeks, that all those all those fields that they got planted that week, they're going to be penalized. Um, and I would have seen situations, I mean, I have seen many times this situation uh, from a farmer that the, the planter broke and he planted one section of the field or, or another field two or three weeks after. And... You will be surprised how many times you might get even better yields when you're looking at rain fed in many of these environments when you are planting just a slightly in a different moment. And I think that the, the challenge with weather is that we don't have a, a way to predict the weather with such a level of precision to understand exactly when it's the right moment and exactly when is the best moment to plant. But what we, um, we have is information to understand what is the risk that we're getting when we're planting in a specific date? And I really think about how we can manage. I mean, and one op option to start managing risk is diversifying that, that planting dates. Yeah, it's it's really good advice, Ignacio, and I I, uh, I really appreciate the call out. I, I think the the whole concept of diversification in our cropping plans, uh, you know, both in in soybean varieties, uh, crop maturities, and, and then planting date. I think it's a, a, a really good call out. Andrew, what else do we have? I think that's a, that's a great summary. You know, uh, I, would, I would end it, you know, Ignacio, if there's anything else you would like growers to think about as they plan for 2024, uh, feel free to, to leave us with that and uh, appreciate the time. Yeah, I would say for growers out there, I mean, 
start thinking about what happened last year, but also have a memory to to think about what happens on the last five to ten years. We usually have this conversation with many growers that just this short, uh, I would say, short-term memory effect. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's not good. <laughs> so so we need to start thinking about what is your five-year average. Um, think about to strategize. Um, think about how you can allocate your inputs more efficiently. Um, and also think about always as to look at your ABC. So for me, ABC is like make sure that you just find the right spots, right planting time, maturity, I mean, the fertility on, on those crops. Uh, once you get that done and once you master all that, you're going to start moving into other levels and then us looking at the variable rate um, as an excellent option to start being more efficient and using resources or looking at other options in terms of technologies. And I think that those are the next steps when you are thinking about kind of a, a point up. Yeah, I, I really like that. So this is the time of the year, Ignacio, that we're obviously spending um, a lot of our time in 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 seed planning meetings, and in those meetings, obviously, you know, we also talk about fertility and 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 all those types of things. But it's an interesting concept, and we probably don't do a good enough job of saying, "Hey, let's talk a lot about obviously our observations from the previous year." But I really like that call out of thinking about like a five year average. And then I was thinking, we make so many emotional decisions in season. You know, we respond to yeah. the weather over the next three days instead of saying, yes. "Hey, in the past five years, the most <laughs> optimum time to plant corn is between this state and this state." Uh, that's that's really good. And it's not that we wouldn't necessarily react to the weather, but it'd be a really good way to build a framework saying, "Hey." Even if the weather's really nice on X day, maybe we want to, you know, consider the trend over the past five years. I think that's a great call out. Um, it's so hard to not just think about what happened, right? Because we just came off harvest and we just came off the crop. But that that's a that's a uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, and I think that is it's always a challenge. Yeah, I mean, for the best option is always to be flexible, try to use as much as data your personal experience as you can to take decisions, try to avoid uh, emotional reaction, reactionary decisions. When you get to look at the weather uh, uh, late March and it looks so good, look at the forecast, look at the next seven to 10 days just to make sure that you take the right decision and there is not really a call from coming uh, and something that will compromise, I mean, all your seeds, I mean, losing quality, losing all that basically profit right off basically the start. Those are the main things that I think that they need to be on the minds of many farmers at this point. That's really good advice. The only thing you're missing, you're missing one key piece of the puzzle, which I'm surprised you haven't brought up yet. But what about what my neighbor's doing? Yeah. <laughs> That's always important. <laughs> always. Uh, Ignacio, you, uh, our, our nitrogen podcast with you was, was absolutely awesome. Appreciate you taking some time, um, with us today. Uh, appreciate all the hard work that you're doing. Yeah. Wish, wish, uh, you and all the, all the farmers you support best of luck next year, but just really appreciate you taking time to join us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's always a pleasure. So thank you.
Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com, or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.